1: And it tells us here in verse 32 that they were amazed at his teaching because his, his message had authority, which makes me wonder, what did the other teacher sound like? You know, they're amazed at Jesus because his message had authority. Whereas what? The other rabbis would stand up and say, listen, you know, this is what I think the word means. I don't really know. Go we'll find out for yourselves. But Jesus comes and he says, this is the word, thus says the Lord, and he delivers the truth with authority. They're amazed at this. It's a bit different from what they're used to. It
0: can be a common misunderstanding to think that the main goal of Jesus' ministry on earth was to heal people. While that was a very important part of Jesus' ministry, it drew people's attention to God. Healing healing wasn't Jesus' main focus. As Pastor Gary will explain in today's message, the main focus of Jesus' ministry was to preach the good news. Jesus wanted to show people the truth that would lead them to eternal life in heaven with God. At the close of Pastor Gary's message today, I'll be sharing with you how you can get a copy of today's broadcast of Cornerstone Connection. Subscribe to the podcast or get in touch with us. But for now, let's join Pastor Gary in the book of Luke chapter 4 with today's edition of Cornerstone Connection.
1: We're in Luke's Gospel chapter 4, so if you'll take your Bibles there and uh, go to Luke chapter 4. Well, we left off here in the middle of Luke 4 last week. We, uh, we left off at the end of verse 30. Jesus has been rejected at Nazareth, Nazareth being the, the town in which Jesus primarily grew up. And uh, He goes there at, at really the beginning of His ministry and is sharing with His own hometown, about his true identity. He's going to read to them out of the book of Isaiah. He's going to quote Isaiah, and then he's going to say that these words are fulfilled today in your hearing because the passage that he quotes from the book of Isaiah is a messianic passage referring to himself. But they dismiss him as just being, well, you're, you're just the son of Joseph the carpenter, you know, we've known you, and they don't accept him as Messiah. In fact, they get furious at his even suggesting that he is. And the Bible says there in Luke 4 that they they take him to the the brow of a hill there in Nazareth and they want to push him off to kill him. They're so mad at him. But the Bible says in verse 30 where we ended last week that he walked right through the crowd and went on his way. So there was some supernatural enabling that uh, he had the ability to just pass through the crowd unharmed and uh, and there's no other reference in the Gospels that Jesus ever returned to Nazareth, that he leaves this place, sadly, and uh, there's no reference that he ever returns. Uh, these people will end up, perhaps many of them, if not most of them, dying in their disbelief. But nevertheless, he reaches out to them first. And we, we talked about how he refers to the fact that a prophet is without honor in his own hometown, and that you might find it sometimes difficult to share the Gospel with people that you've known the most. Sometimes the people you, you know the most will respect you and receive from you the least. It is just a strange thing. So in those cases, pray for God to bring along other people to touch family members and friends that are, that are otherwise not generally receptive to you because you're just too close to the, to the subject. They, they often, people that we're closest to and family and friends, don't always accept what we have to say about the gospel. A uh, prophet is without honor in his own hometown, so to speak, and so pray that God would bring other people along to witness to them and, and that their eyes and ears would be opened to the truth by some other person, some other means. Well, Jesus leaves Nazareth, and it tells us in verse 31 that he went down to Capernaum, a town in Galilee, and on the Sabbath began to teach the people. They were amazed at his teaching because his message had authority. In the synagogue, there was a man possessed by a demon, an evil spirit. He cried out at the top of his voice, Ha! What do you want with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. Be quiet, Jesus said sternly. Come out of him. And then the demon threw the man down before them all and came out without injuring him. All the people were amazed and said to each other, What is this teaching? With authority and power, he gives orders to evil spirits, and they come out, and the news about him spread throughout the surrounding area. So Jesus returns here. Capernaum is going to be, again, the home base of his ministry, primarily for the three, three and a half years of his public ministry. And he goes specifically, he tells us here, to the synagogue in Capernaum. It is one of the few places that we know exactly where that is located. A lot of places in Israel that you, you walk and you go, "Well, did Jesus stand here did you know did Jesus stand on this rock? Did Jesus touch this tree? You know you don't always know those kind of things, and it becomes a, a bit of a mystical thing that happens. but this is one of those locations. In fact, this is a picture from one of our last trips to Israel. Some of our own people mulling around there in the uh, the ancient ruins of the synagogue of Capernaum, and the foundation of this synagogue of these ruins dates back to the first century. So we know that this is that synagogue, this is that location there in Capernaum where Jesus is uh, teaching. And it tells us here in verse 32 that they were amazed at his teaching because his, his message had authority, which makes me wonder, what did the other teacher sound like? You know, they're amazed at Jesus because his message had authority. Whereas what? The other rabbis would stand up and say, listen, you know, this is what I think the word means. I don't really know. Go find out for yourselves. But Jesus comes and he says, this is the word, thus says the Lord. And he delivers the truth with authority. They're amazed at this. It's a bit different from what they're used to. And in the synagogue, yes, even in church, there can be demon possessed people. Not referring to anyone in particular, I'm just saying that here in the synagogue, there's this demon-possessed man, and the demon speaks through this man and says, and I don't really want to do my demon voice because that, you know, so so just read verse 34 normally, you know, ha, what do you want with us, Jesus? But you kind of imagine, I kind of imagine this guttural, you know, kind of a kind of a voice. "Uh, Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. So. Demons have proper Christology. In other words, the study of Christ. Demons understand who Jesus is. They don't submit to him. They rebelled against him. The demons are fallen angelic beings that rebelled with Lucifer during a great revolt in heaven. The book of Revelation says that the great dragon, referring to Satan, when he rebelled against Lucifer, God swept a third of the stars with them. In other words, a third of the angelic beings rebelled with Lucifer in heaven. How many is a third? We don't know because we don't know how many angels that there are, but it probably represents a myriad number. I mean, hundreds of thousands, perhaps, of angels that rebelled with Lucifer, now known as demons, fallen angelic beings, evil spirits. They are unseen to us, but they are still, uh, relatively speaking, powerful. Now, People can get hung up on demons and the study of demons. Uh, I read a quote a little while ago by C.S. Lewis on this subject of demons and demonology, and I think he had a good thing to say. He said this, quote, There are two equal and opposite errors into which our race can fall about the devils, about demons. One is the disbelief in their existence. The other is to believe and to feel an excessive and unhealthy interest in them. End quote. And I think C.S. Lewis is right about that because there seems to be on the spectrum of the view of demons, there's this one view that kind of dismisses them outright. That, you know, we just people who who just think that demons don't exist; they aren't real. I know they're, they're spoken of in the Bible, but you know, they're probably some other strange phenomenon. And if they did exist, they don't exist now, and all this kind of nonsense. I remember as a teenager being in a room of retired Methodist pastors who were telling me that all the references in the Bible related to demon possession were really another way of saying people had mental illness. And they, com- and they, were com- they completely dismissed anything having to do with demon possess- possession. And I remember firing back because I was more of a punk then even than I am now. And I remember saying, well, then what in the world did Jesus cast out of them? Like their minds or what? So that's just ridiculous. Now, That's one perspective, like, well, we don't even believe that demons exist, and and it's just, you know, another term for perhaps mental illness or all all of this kind of stuff. And then on the other end of the spectrum, you have people who are are seeing demons underneath every leaf, and, and, and they blame demons for everything. I had a woman years ago who came up to me having financial troubles, and she asked me if I would pray over her checkbook. I said, why, why would I want to pray over your checkbook? She says, because I want you to join with me in casting out the demons from my checkbook. I said, you need to check up, all right, because there are no checkbook demons, okay? You need to get a job is what you need to get. So, I mean, there's all these kind of views about everybody is either blaming a demon and they see demons in everything. Oh, there's a demon. Oh, the demons. Oh, there's demons. Oh, the, you know Oh, it's a hot day today. Oh, it's the it's the demon weather. I, you know, it's just craziness. Or on the other end of the spectrum, it's it's this we just dismiss it outright. We don't believe in demons. And, and C.S. Lewis is right. There seems to be these these opposite spectrums here. But the truth is that demons are real. They are fallen angelic beings. They have a measure of power, limited though it might be, to either oppress people That is to say, to attack from without, from outside our our bodies, to try to attack or tempt, discourage, and or to possess people. That is to come inside a person. Now, I believe, and and you will have a a disagreement on this depending on on who you might listen to. I I don't believe that a Christian can be possessed by, by a demon. Because when you look at the full counsel of God's word, the Holy Spirit doesn't share another being. If you've surrendered your life to Jesus, it's not like then you get God, the Father, God, the Son, God, the Holy Spirit. And he's just going to move over every now and again for a demon. That doesn't work that way. Okay, Greater is he that is in us than he that is in the world. And Paul makes that distinction between Our having the presence of the Holy Spirit being born again and saved versus the demonic principalities from without. It isn't to say that Christians can't still be oppressed and bothered and attacked in some way, but not possessed. Now, this guy here is possessed. There is at least one, maybe more. This demon, as it speaks, refers to us and I singularly in the same sentence, in the same verse. You know, we know who you are. He says, have you come to destroy us? And then he says, I know who you are. So, you know, is it one? Is it several? You know, one's too many. Amen? One is too many. Okay, so, and, and they're liars anyway. You know, Satan is a liar and the father of lies. So they're never going to tell you the truth anyhow. So we don't know. But the, the, the issue is here, this guy's actually possessed here. And Jesus is going to cast the demon out. And even though, again, still today, people can be, who don't know Christ, can be possessed by a demon they can also be delivered today just as they were in the days of Jesus. Demons can be cast out of someone. And Colossians 2 and verse 15 says that Jesus made a public spectacle over powers and authorities, referring to demonic principalities, by disarming them on the cross. And so what Jesus did in his finished work on the cross enables us through the name of Jesus to do the works of Jesus, even and including the casting out of demons and and so what happens here is that Jesus is going to deliver this guy uh, from this demon and he's and he simply first he 's going to tell the demon to be quiet and there 's a reason for that and we 'll talk about that a little bit further down because he 's going to also cast out more demons further down and, and we 're going to see You know why particularly he didn't want them to speak, but he says first be quiet, and then he and he says come out of him. And the demon threw the man down, so there was kind of this convulsion scene going on here. But the man himself was not injured, and and the demon came out, and all the people were amazed, and uh, they end up saying again in verse thirty six with authority and power, he gives orders to evil spirits, and they come out, and uh, and and they're they're equally amazed. They're amazed at his teaching. They're amazed at his power. So they hadn't seen much power and I guess had very good teaching in the synagogue in Capernaum because they are amazed at Jesus. And news, verse 37, news about him spread throughout the surrounding area. And then it says in verse 38 that Jesus left the synagogue and went to the home of Simon. Now, this is Simon Peter. Now, we know from archaeological digs that Simon Peter's home was located right there in Capernaum. So he's just he's he's staying within Capernaum. This is an aerial view of Capernaum and Peter's house now has been excavated and there's evidence that that has indicated that that was his home, and so uh, his house is now located under. If you kind of look at the center of your screen, it kind of looks like a flying saucer that has landed in Capernaum. That's actually now a Catholic church that has been built over the house of Peter, and it has kind of a glass bottom to the to the church, so you can actually go in the church and look down over top. So it's kind of you know it's kind of an awkward building over top an ancient home, but at the same time. At least the Catholics have preserved an ancient site. So you kind of take the flying saucer with the historical preservation. But anyway, the, so Jesus is going to move now from the synagogue. It's just, it's just a, a few steps, really, from the synagogue to the home of Simon Peter. And it says now Simon, Simon's mother-in-law was suffering from a high fever, and they asked Jesus to help her. So he bent over her and rebuked the fever, and it left her. She got up at once and began to wait on them. By the way, again, just speaking in terms of doctrine, Roman Catholic Church uh, refers to Peter as the first pope of the Roman Catholic Church. And interestingly, first pope was married because he has a mother-in-law. And you get one of those when you get married. It's kind of a package deal. You get married, you get a mother-in-law. So even though it doesn't say Peter was married, he has a mother-in-law, so it indicates to us that he was married, okay? He has a mother-in-law here. Please note that Jesus... Uh, loves mothers in, uh, mothers-in-law and mothers because he, he heals her right here. And uh, please also note that it's because he m- must have wanted her to get up and serve other people. But I, no, no, that's not, no, no. But that's what she does because she just has a heart for serving other people. Um, but she's sick here. She's suffering from a high fever. And uh, Jesus, verse 39, bent over her, rebuked the fever, and it left her. She got up at once and began to wait on them. So, Um, Jesus is going to perform this miracle here for Simon Peter's mother-in-law, and and Peter is not yet an official disciple, an official apostle, one of the twelve. Jesus doesn't select uh, Peter until chapter 5, and the rest of the twelve get selected in chapter 6. So he's not even yet one of the twelve, but Jesus will often find lodging here at the home of Simon Peter, and he does a very gracious thing here by healing his mother-in-law. And it tells us in verse 40, that when the sun was setting, the people brought to Jesus all who had various kinds of sickness, and laying his hands on each one, he healed them. Moreover, demons came out of many people, shouting, "'You are the Son of God.'" but he rebuked them and would not allow them to speak because they knew he was the Christ. Now, try to imagine, first of all, just how exhausting his day must be. I mean, he's been teaching in the synagogue. Then he goes to Simon Peter's house and he and he heals his mother-in-law. And then it talks here about how all the sick are coming from the whole town here. And Jesus is basically having, you know, a, a little healing revival ministry going on here at the home of Simon Peter's. And, uh, and in addition, many demons are being cast out. So uh, he, he must be tired. He's getting exhausted here. Uh, we're going to see how Luke emphasizes that Jesus goes off to solitary places and prays and gets refreshed, and that's important for all of us. But please note this part here about when Jesus was casting out these demons from people, he would order them. They they would say, you are the Son of God, but he rebuked them and would not allow them to speak because they knew he was the Christ. Now, why would he rebuke them? Again, they have a proper understanding of his identity. The demons recognize him and know him to be the Christ, the Son of God. He's the Messiah. Why is it that Jesus causes them to be quiet and doesn't want them to say anything? Well, let me ask you this. If you wanted people to know who you were, I mean, who the real you was and is. You probably wouldn't ask the town liar to communicate that to people, right? That's what's going on here. Jesus does not want his reputation and his identity to be hinged on demons, okay? Because they're liars. So they're not, they don't reflect well on Jesus. They, They are not great spokesmen for Jesus. So he wants the demons to be quiet because they're all a bunch of liars and they're evil. He doesn't want people, if they believe what the demons are saying, which the demons are saying what is true, he doesn't want demons to become a source of truth and for people to believe in the demons that are uttering the truth here. So he wants them to all be quiet, uh, and he rebukes them, commands them not to speak. And then it says in verse 42 that at daybreak, Jesus went out to a solitary place. Here's where Luke particularly emphasizes this about the life and ministry of Jesus. That he, that he often needed to go to a solitary place, that he just needed to get alone and pray. And um, it's very critical that we see this because if the Son of God saw the need, saw the necessity to take regularly, regular times of just getting alone and seeking the face of the Father and praying and being by himself and getting his batteries recharged, so to speak, how much more do we need that? How much more do we need that? So he goes off to a solitary place, And it says, the people were looking for him. And when they came to where he was, they tried to keep him from leaving them. But he said, I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God to the other towns also, because that is why I was sent. And he kept on preaching in the synagogues of Judea. Again, I mentioned this last week. Sometimes people think that the main purpose of Jesus' ministry was coming to heal people, you know, healing the sick, raising the dead. And he did that along the way. But his main ministry was to preach was to share the truth, because that the people would know the truth, and by the truth, they would be set free. And so his main ministry was preaching, and again, I mentioned last week, Josephus, first century historian, said that in the region of the Galilee, at the time of Jesus, there were 207 towns that had a population on average of 10,000 or more. There was more than two people living in the region of the Galilee. Today, only about 500,000, so there was a lot more people living in the region of the Galilee than there were in, in Jesus' day than there are today. And, and Jesus was on a mission to go from town to town to town to town to town to preach the good news, the truth of who he is and, who they can, uh, and how they can have a relationship with him. And he kept on preaching in the synagogues of Judea. Chapter 5 it says, One day as Jesus was standing by the lake of Gennesaret with the people crowding around him and listening to the word of God, again, he's teaching them, he saw at the water's edge two boats left there by the fishermen who were washing their nets, he got into one of the boats, the one belonging to Simon, that's Peter, and asked him to put out a little from shore. Then he sat down and taught the people from the boat. Okay, so underlined there in your Bibles or highlighted in your electronic Bibles, Lake of Gennesaret. What's the Lake of Gennesaret? Lake of Gennesaret is the Sea of Galilee. Luke is the only one who uses this term, and it's the only time you find it right here in the Bible. Matthew and Mark refer to Gennesaret as a as a plain, a, a kind of a field area uh, along the, the shores of the Sea of Galilee. But this is a term for the Sea of Galilee. And Gennesaret, this is this is an aerial view, actually from NASA, this is an aerial view of the Sea of Galilee. And the word Gennesaret, Gennesaret has everything to do with the Sea of Galilee because The the term Gennesaret is a Greek term, because remember the New Testament is written in Greek, and then we're translating from Greek to English in our English Bibles. So Gennesaret is really uh, from a Greek word, and the Greek is trying to capture a Hebrew word from the Old Testament referring to this body of water. Gennesaret is a Greek word for the Hebrew Kinnerot. Kinnerot is from a Hebrew word that means lyre or harp. That is why in the Old Testament, six times the Sea of Galilee is referred to as the Sea of Kinnereth, because it is in the shape of an ancient lyre, okay? as in musical instrument. Lyre, an ancient lyre, kind of the shape of an ancient lyre, uh, looks similar to the Sea of Galilee from an aerial view. And so Gennesaret is simply the Greek uh, transliteration of the Hebrew word kinnerot, Uh, That's why in the Old Testament it's often referred to as the Sea of Kinnereth because it's in the shape of a harp. So extra information for free.
0: The Gospel of Luke takes a unique look at the life of Christ from his birth to his ministry, his death and resurrection. Luke described Jesus as the Son of Man, one of his favorite ways to refer to himself. Jesus was God in human form, showing all of us what it means to live a completely sinless life. There was no fault to be found in him, yet Jesus was still nailed to a cross. But his death had purpose too. He stood in for you, taking the punishment your sin deserves. And then he rose from the grave, conquering death and the evil one. What an amazing Savior this Son of Man truly is. Are you interested in knowing more about Jesus, or would you like someone to pray with you? If so, please email us at prayer at cornerstonechapel.net. That's prayer at cornerstonechapel.net. Do you live in or near Leesburg, Virginia? If so, we invite you to come join us this Sunday for a time of worship, Bible study, and fellowship at Cornerstone Chapel. Find out service times and more information when you visit our website, cornerstoneconnection.cc. You'll also find previous messages from Pastor Gary and be able to download our mobile app. Again, that's cornerstoneconnection.cc. That's all for today. Thanks for tuning in to Cornerstone Connection.